Um, we have been talking about the idea of God being big, which is a big thing to try to tackle the last couple weeks and throughout the next couple weeks. Big God, um, he's huge, he's massive, he's high above, like Jeremiah says. It's hard to fathom his ways, his thoughts. He's mysterious, he's unpredictable, um, but he's present and he's here. And so that's what we want to talk about. And uh, today, uh, because Ken knows that I have a history with materialism, that sounds kind of strange, but um, he wanted me to kind of talk about big God or the idol of materialism, what it looks like when things, stuff, possessions um, are elevated to an improper place. Um, when I was working at a, a church about four or five years ago, I, I began to develop this very deep suspicion of our culture, of my culture, of my own Christian faith, that at the center of it was this desire, this need to consume, this desire, this need to hide behind something that people like you would look at and be impressed by. So materialism kind of came that thing. As I started looking at it, studying it, I realized that in order to really understand um, my own culture, I had to get out of it. So I quit my job and went to Ethiopia for 12 weeks, spent it with a bunch of homeless kids living on the streets in Addis Ababa. And in those 12 weeks, I was able to begin to understand how culture here began to shape my theology, shape the way I think, shape my own construct of reality. And hanging out with these kids between, you know, 4 to 18 who are homeless, who are living on zero dollars a day, who are scraping by, who are literally surviving, uh, was able to begin to see the threads of materialism woven into my life um, because their reality was just so other than mine, so radically different than mine. And everything in my life, theology, ideology, um, kind of came tumbling down, it just ruptured, and it was kind of like starting over. Okay, God, in light of this, how then do I live? How then do we live? When we begin to see the, the, the forces that influence us, that move us and shape us, that aren't you, God, what do we do with that? How then shall we live? So that's kind of where we're going today. I want to look at the, the cultural concept of covering. In our culture, there's this idea of covering, and then I want to look at the biblical concept of covering, what it means to be covered. So, um, but let's, let's pray real quick. If you guys don't mind, let's do that. Uh, God, this morning, we gather together because we, we want to know who you are. We're not here uh, by accident. Um, we came because we have a desire. We pray that you, you breathe onto that desire, God that you make space in us, in our thoughts, and in our hearts, God, in our being. You make space for who you are. Not for who we think you are, but for who you are. Not for who we have been told you are, but for who you truly are. I pray that you, you multiply that desire. Fan it into a flame, God, that would consume us and transform us. That you would rupture what we think we know and replace it with the heart of your spirit. We pray all this, God. In your name, amen. So I was thinking about materialism this week, consumerism, which is a, a huge, a huge thing. Like you start looking at numbers, um, you, you know, you type into Google like consumer reports or consumer debt, 2009 or 2010. Um, these these mind-boggling abstract type of numbers start showing up like this. 
Um, consumer debt in the United States in 2009 was $2.5 trillion. Like, who, whose brain can fathom $2.5 trillion? It's, it's too big. It's impossible to really get your hands on. $2.5 trillion. That means if you took every human being, man, woman, child in our country and averaged it out, every single individual would have $8,100 of consumer debt. It's not, it's not mortgages. It's not real estate. That's just consumer debt. We have a lot of things that we can't pay for. We have a lot of things in our possession that we don't own. Someone else owns them, but we use them. I mean, culturally, this is a phenomenon. When you look around, this idea of consumerism, this idea of materialism is thick. It's hard to look at anything without seeing these kinds of numbers. Um, another interesting thing I found, thanks to Google, 43% uh, of households spend more than they make every year. I don't get that concept. Um, Money's, your money's going out that's not coming in. They said on average that every person, that every dollar you make, you'll spend $1.22. <laughs> Somewhere that 22 cents is coming from. And after a while, that, that obviously adds up. Um, so these numbers are, are huge and big and, and kind of numb and just kind of like, yeah, whatever, I, I, that doesn't really strike me. And so I very much appreciate people, um, especially working in, in relief and development, we work with huge numbers. Um, poverty, for example, you know, like three billion people make less than a dollar a day. I mean, three billion people, you can't really imagine that. So we need to take these kinds of numbers and put them into something that we can look at to visualize, to begin to understand uh, the severity of what exactly we're talking about. And there's this artist, uh, this conceptual artist named Chris Jordan, who does this for a living. And a couple years ago, he did this really cool project called Run the Numbers. And what he did was he took all of these huge abstract statistics, knowing that as our brains just can't really process it to something tangible that really impacts us and says, wow, this is huge and I'm a part of this. So what he does is he takes these statistics and he takes these images and he creates these um, displays. And for an example, like we'll throw up this first picture here real quick. And it doesn't really look like much, but these are the little plastic cups you get on an airplane. You see them? And they're all stacked up. They're going, they're going everywhere. Um, so he took the statistic for little plastic cups used by airlines. Um, every six hours, one million plastic cups. So he takes these, and if we go to the next picture, and he creates this piece, and he shows you that is one million plastic cups. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. It looks like nothing, but when you, when you realize what it is, literally on that canvas, one million plastic cups every six hours that airlines go through. That's incredible. That's incredible. He's got the, the next one he's got is, is pretty interesting, too. It looks like these stacks. These are brown paper bags from a grocery store, okay, stacked up. And it looks like a lot, but when you zoom out to see the entire picture, you realize that I think it's every hour, every hour, 1,114,000 paper bags are used every hour in our country from grocery stores. And that's literally 1,114,000 paper bags. Like, you begin to go, ooh, <laughs> when you actually can see how much it looks like. And he had this on display in New York City, and I'm telling you, these canvases were like, like a person 
on this, on this display would be like this big. I mean, it's tiny. It's tiny in comparison when you stack it all up. Um, he's got this other one about uh, aluminum cans. Wait, is that the next one or is it bottles? Yeah, bottles is the next one. So you can see all these bottles. And don't look at the bottle on the table right now because um, that's kind of embarrassing. Um, so all these bottles stacked in, and if we zoom out, it really looks like a sea of nothing. But every single one of those pixels is a bottle. Um, it's something like every, every five minutes, we go through like two million bottles. Just gonna like hide that right there real quick. I mean, that's overwhelming. That thing is, that's huge. Uh, the last one he has is a, is a picture of, of soda cans. Uh, if you guys are, are soda drinkers. And so he kind of has them all like this. And if you zoom out, it's a, it's a replication of an old painting that he did. Every single one of those is a soda can um, or, or an aluminum can. Um, this, is, this is startling. Every, um, where is it on here? <laughs> Every 30 seconds, 106,000 aluminum cans. Every 30 seconds. I mean, that's a lot of cans. I don't know, for, for me, like looking at that makes much more of an impression than saying, did you know that every 30 seconds we go through, you know, 100,000 cans um, in our country? I mean, that's a lot. But this, to me, it's helpful. It's helpful to have a picture of that, to have a frame of reference to use when we look at that. And basically, what he's trying to say with this, um, with this art display, and what I'm trying to say as we start this morning, is that you and I consume stuff. Right? Uh, we consume stuff. We live in a very consumeristic, materialistic kind of culture. And so I want to look at this morning what, what happens when these kinds of things, and it's not bad to drink water, out of a bottle, I guess. It's not bad to drink coffee out of a paper cup. It's not bad to fly in an airplane and drink out of a little plastic cup. Um, but really, I mean, it's like a two-hour-long flight. Do you have to have 30, I mean, like, two ounces of 7-Up? I mean, it's just kind of a funny thing. I mean, some buddies were joking about that the other day. It's like, two hours, you need two ounces of 7-Up, you can make it. Um, but we're consumers, and, and we're materialistic, and this is how it goes. So what happens when material things, when materialism is elevated to an improper place? What happens when stuff and, and money and possessions is elevated to a place where it becomes more than it was intended to become? That's the idea behind idolatry, an idol. When something incomplete is elevated to offer a complete thing. Something that's designed to fail from the beginning. We expect an incomplete thing to offer a complete thing. Um, reading uh, some Tim Keller, this book right here, which we have out on, on, on the uh, book cart today. It's okay to consume this. Um, he has some really great definitions of idolatry. He says this, take an incomplete joy from this world and build your entire life upon it. That's an idol. Take an incomplete joy from this world and build your entire life upon it, and then you have an idol. Later on, he says, what is an idol? Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything can become an idol, not just bad things. Not just bad things. Good things. Relationships can become an idol. Work can become an idol. Both of those things are good, and they can be good, 
money that can be used for good, that is not inherently evil, can definitely become something that our lives begin to revolve around, that give us value, that give us meaning, that give us substance, that give us um, a thing to feel like when people look at us, we have worth, and they'll appreciate who we are. So when we take something like money, stuff, possessions, elevate it, an incomplete thing, and expect completeness from it, we're flirting with idolatry. And it's interesting in our culture, this, this other book I was reading this week called Consumed by a professor at the University of Maryland named Benjamin Barber. Um, he said basically what's happening in our culture is the infantilization of consumers. You and I, adults, are acting like children, infants. We're throwing temper tantrums when we don't get what we want. We're throwing temper tantrums when we have to wait for things. Delayed gratification is a lost art. We want it now and we want it our way. And we have restaurant chains that have that literally as their slogan. You can have it your way. No one can tell you different. Just tell us what you want and we'll get it to you in five minutes or less or it's free. I mean, this is a, this is a reality inside of our culture. And Benjamin Barber describes this, this phenomenon by defining childhood this way. He says, a child wants what it wants when it wants it. If you have kids, right? There's no saying no sometimes. A child wants what it wants when it wants it. No concept of a bigger picture. No concept of consequences. I don't care what it takes. I want it. Give it to me now. And a temper tantrum in a four-year-old looks exactly the same as a temper tantrum in a 40-year-old. The clothes are just different. It's just dressed up better. You want what you want when you want it. He says that's the driving thing in our economy. That's the driving thing in marketing and capitalism is we want what we want when we want it and you can't tell us otherwise. If we don't get it, we're going to throw a temper tantrum. We're going to get upset. There's something about the way we consume things, that if it's elevated, there's something about materials that if we misunderstand what its purpose is and if we elevate it to a higher purpose, uh, we're flirting with idolatry. We're flirting with this idea of worshiping a false god, or as Tim Keller calls it in this book, uh, a counterfeit god. So this, um, this spirit of we want what we want when we want it, this threat that materialism can become an idol. Uh, I want to look at a couple pieces of scripture today, starting in Luke chapter 12, if you guys brought your Bibles. Um, when materialism does become an idol, there's this fantastic parable in Luke chapter 12. Uh, a little bit of context here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to a crowd. And he's telling them, you don't have to have fear. You don't have to have anxiety uh, about your life. You don't have to fear these small things because when you fear God, everything else falls into order. So don't worry is the gist of his message. All these things around you, all the things that dominate your thinking, your, your daydreaming, your brainstorming, all of that is, is a waste of time because it's a small thing. You are part of something bigger. 
Don't forget that. Don't have that child-type mentality that just says, I want what I want when I want it. I don't care about consequences. Um, I don't care that it all adds up to equal those types of numbers we're talking about earlier. I don't care. That, that's not really me. This is my reality right here and now, so give me what I want. And Jesus is saying, guys, you've got to get past that. Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I became a man, guess what? I started thinking like an adult like a man. I have a grasp of this bigger picture, this larger thing going on. And that's what God does, is he brings this level of perspective that changes the way we operate. It changes the way we consume. It changes the way we buy things. Because our value isn't locked up in those things, it's locked up in him. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to you. Don't worry about this stuff. Do you have me? And so out of that type of... Um, that teaching, someone in the crowd, verse 13, chapter 12, someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> what, what does Jesus say to that? This big, have no fear, don't worry about these things, and someone raises their hand in the back, question, um, Jesus, tell him to give me my stuff. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I mean, are you listening to what I'm saying? I to- Why are you so worried about this? And so he goes into a parable because it's a fantastic teaching tool that Jesus always employs is to create a story, a place, a time, a setting with characters and let people realize, man, that guy's a lot like me. Um, so he says this, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. He tells the story, a land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store in all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life does not consist of your materials, of what you own. And this guy, this, our man in this parable, makes this mistake. Uh, idolatry of stuff, of possessions, is saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to use this stuff to find comfort. I'm going to tell my soul, hey, soul, get stuff, and then you'll be good. Hey, soul, if you have possessions, well done. Eat, drink, and be merry, because there is no fear. You put your hope in the stuff. You put your faith in the belongings. So that when people come, they associate you with that. Yeah, he's, he's good, and deep down you think, man, I've got this stuff, so, so yeah, I must be good because that's what everybody else is trying to get and I've got it. I'm doing okay. You know, I'm keeping up with the Joneses, right? Is that the saying? I don't know if you guys have ever listened to Dave Ramsey. <laughs> really kind of intriguing guy, Christian guy who talks about finances all the time and, and he gets really like beat red when he speaks because he gets fired up about debt and finances and all that stuff. And that's one of his like famous lines. It's like, everybody's trying to keep up with the Joneses, but what nobody realizes is that the Joneses are broke. (laughs) 
The Joneses are $8,000 in debt or $58,000 in debt. Good luck with that. Have fun. Um, I, I just think that's, I think that's great. We, we have this stuff, these materials, that if we elevate it to a place where we think it will complete us, where we think it defines us, we're like the rich man in this parable and we're flirting with idolatry. We're flirting with it. And here's the myth about materialism, about stuff in our culture. We think we can hide behind it. We think it's a covering, a shield, protection. Um, Wall Street gets a little rocky. Stocks start dropping. It's okay. I've got hope. I've got comfort. I've got security in the bank and my assets. I'm good. I'm covered. Um, someone dies, it's okay. We've got, we've got an insurance plan for this. We're good. My hope is in this. We're okay. We're covered. We can hide behind it from a protection standpoint, and we can hide behind it from an identity standpoint. And we do. And we wear clothes, and we drive cars, and we build houses, and we remodel houses. And we use it as an expression of our identity. We probably don't walk around saying, hey, come over and look at how great I am, look at all this stuff, but, but we love it when it's acknowledged, don't we? We love it when, when people look at it, or, or we have these like hypothetical situations where people come over and it's great, and then they're driving home and we're standing there in our house alone thinking, man, I, I bet they're talking about how great this is now. And that makes me feel good. They value me because of this stuff. I've got worth in their eyes because of this stuff. Um, we use materialism like a tool to build a wall, to build a shield, to build a covering. Um, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 3, God has wrapped up the creation scene. Um, he's breathed his life into Adam, into Eve. He's filled them with his spirit, with his pneuma. Um, he has set them apart from every other living thing because he's breathed into them, because we are made in his image. And it is good, it's complete, it's done, it's right. And he gives them this setting this home uh, of abundance, of beauty, of joy, of companionship. And he says, this is all good and it's all yours. But there's one thing. You do have the option. If you want to, you can decide anytime you want to seek independence from me by making your autonomy greater than my sovereignty. That's, that's the choice you have. I love you, and I give you that freedom. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, we pick up with Adam and Eve deciding to act on that freedom, deciding that their autonomy was greater than the sovereignty of God. Right? There was this lie served up to them. It said, God told you not to do this, let me tell you something about God. He's not good. If he was good, he would have given this to you, this knowledge of good and evil. 
If he really loved you, he would have made you with this, but he didn't. He's holding out on you is the lie. It's the myth. It's the archaic lie. It's the lie that's been going on from the beginning, and it's the lie that's going on today. God is not good. If he was good, I wouldn't hurt. If he was good, my mom wouldn't be sick. If he was good, my husband wouldn't have left me. If he was good, there literally would not be a billion people living on less than a dollar a day. It would not happen. Holocausts don't happen with a good God. My heart doesn't break with a good God. That is the lie from the beginning. We question the goodness of God. And when we do that, what do we elevate? We elevate ourself, our autonomy. If it's not him, it must be me. He made this wrong. Something is really, really wrong with the way this is working. I'm not right. This isn't right. Something's wrong. It's up to me. I'm going to figure this out and fix it. I'll trust myself. And we do, we take a step away. We seek independence from God, from his nature, from his character, from his presence. And Adam and Eve do this. They decide to act on the lie. They express their autonomy. They question God's sovereignty. And verse eight says this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They knew, they knew that their autonomy wasn't going to work. And when God comes into the scene, they shrink, they hide, they jump into the bushes, they make this choice. And this choice leads to shame. It leads to guilt. It leaves them wishing they could go back and saying, man, we realize now that that was a lie. God is good. That, that wasn't true. This is true. God is true. This is right. And now we've stepped away from it and we begin to realize, what have we done? And so we hide. We get in the bushes. And when God comes walking into the garden, what does he ask them? His question to Adam, to Eve, his question throughout Scripture, his question to you and to me is this, where are you? Where are you? I I made you, I put you here, I breathe my life into you. We have this relationship, this connection. You decide, you make this choice that I'm not good and that you're better, so you express that and you go out and you do these things and you hide You hide from me. Why are you hiding? Verse 9, God calls to the man and says to him, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? What happened here? Verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Shame. Exposure. Vulnerability. God, I heard you coming and I I didn't want you to see me because I wasn't right. If you looked at me, you would see me and, and you wouldn't like it. So I hid. I jumped in the bushes, God, I didn't want you to see this reality that I made this choice. I'm ashamed of who I am, and I don't want you to see that. I'm afraid, I'm hiding. 
says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then the guy blames it on the girl. Um, <laughs> which is a, kind of a joke, absolutely a joke. We've been hiding, we learned how to hide from the beginning. We make a choice to seek independence from God. That choice leaves us one option, and that choice is to hide. The choice is to hide behind our stuff. Uh, Our cultural concept of a covering is materialism. We could talk about other things, relationships. A lot of us hide in relationships. Um, Success, which is closely related to what we're talking about today. Power. A lot of people hide behind power. A lot of the most powerful people you know are the ones that are hiding the most from God, from who they really are. Our cultural concepts of covering is materialism. And it's easy to hide behind because literally everybody's doing it. Everywhere we look. It's, it's the lens of our culture. It's the metric that we use to measure success, is it not? It's what universities and colleges use as a marketing tool to 18, 17-year-old kids. You come to school here, you'll get a degree, and you'll get a good job. I went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and they boasted all the time about the starting salary of people first year out of college, (laughs) $78,000. Somehow I slipped through that crack. Um, Starting salary, average graduate at Emory University in 2004, $78,000. And if you're my age, if you're my generation, um, we breathe this stuff. I know you might be sitting there thinking, no, 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 not me, but we really do breathe this stuff. For the first time ever in the history of the world, my generation graduates from college thinking and expecting the same standard of living that our parents had when we left to go to college. I gotta own a house, I gotta own a car, I gotta have good clothes, I gotta be able to invest in my kids' college education. I mean, we really, we really do. We come out thinking that. We fail to realize in the bigger picture that most of our parents started with each other and nothing else. You could probably get an amen from all the 50-year-olds out there right now, yeah. <laughs> like a one-bedroom apartment, right? Like an old Volkswagen bug that got like six miles to the gallon, right? Yeah. I mean, it took time, right? Yeah, it took work. The, our generation, we just kind of myopic. We, but in our defense, um, it's the gospel of our culture. It's the thing that we get preached to all the time. Your safety is in your job. Your safety is in your savings account. Your safety is in your portfolio. Your safety is in your 401k. Get it. If you don't get it, you're a fool. You're a fool. And it's interesting to me that in this parable we just read, the guy that does that, Jesus comes to and says, you're a fool. <laughs> what are you thinking? You thought, this would, you thought this would hide you? You thought this would make you safe, this thought? You thought this would bring value and comfort to your life? You thought when I showed up, you could just show me 
your stuff, and I would say, wow, well done, good and faithful servant, come on in. I mean, how radical is that difference? Um, I literally, you know, I think I've told this story before, but when I was 15 years old, my high school counselor sat me down and said, Matt, um, and he was a cool guy, Dr. Kelly, I think his name was, but he had one eye that was glass and one eye that was real, and so he'd be looking at you and at the wall at the same time, and when you're 15, you're like, you know, you're trying to get in there, you're like, hey, um, so I'll never forget this guy. 15 years old, he said, Matt, I, I hear that you dropped Spanish 3. Yeah, I did. I want to take dodgeball. <laughs> Not a lot of foresight on my part, granted, but um, his case was, well, I'm afraid if you drop Spanish 3, uh, when, you, when you apply to college next year, you're, not, you're only going to have two years of a language, and um, good schools only accept students with three years of a language from high school. I said, okay, I'll take my chances. Dodgeball is more fun, and uh, I'm never going to need to speak Spanish, which didn't turn out to be true at all. Um, but that was his argument, 15 years old. He said this, if you don't take this class and put this on your resume, you won't get into the kind of a college that will give you the type of education that you'll get a really great job and be okay with. 15 years old. I mean, he's, he's, he's talking to me wrong. I'm thinking about dodgeball, and he's bringing out this line of, of thinking. Um, what, what does a 15-year-old do with that? That kind of thought. You're a fool for dropping Spanish because it will affect the rest of your life, financially speaking? It's possible. Um, it's, 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 it's really preached everywhere we look. Colleges, jobs, um, financial service institutions. I mean, it's everywhere. And they're not bad, you guys. College was a great decision. Education was a great decision. Having a job was a great decision. But when it's elevated to a level where we expect it to offer some type of completeness, some type of hope and comfort, we're in danger. So how do we know? How do we know if materialism is uh, at the level of idolatry in our lives? How do we know if we're expecting some type of completeness from an incomplete thing? Uh, I wrote down some ideas. Here's the first one. Um, materialism is an idol in our heart when the wants become needs. Uh, we use those words synonymously in our culture. I need to renovate my kitchen. I need a new hot tub. Need it. You want it. That's fine. It's fine to want a hot tub. If you've got one, call me. I'll put it to use. It's fine to want a hot tub. It's fine to want a, a kitchen that you, that you love and enjoy because really food is important and that's where life happens is in the kitchen. So have a good kitchen. That's fine. But when we blur those, when we use those words synonymously, I need it. If I don't have this new kitchen, I'm going to be embarrassed. I can't invite people over. And this, is, this, this is disgusting. This is a joke. The walls are pink. You can't have people over with pink cabinets, pink walls. I need to have this. I, I, I need the hot tub. Everybody else has a hot tub. I need one. If I don't have one, something is wrong. That's the bar. I need it. Uh, when that happens, chances are there's a little bit of the idol of materialism going on in your heart. Now hear me straight on this. It's okay to want 
it. But let me ask you this. Do you have to go into debt to get it? Or do you have to stop giving to get it? Do you have to cheat on your taxes to get it? See what I'm saying? It's okay to want it. But does it make us do things we wouldn't normally do to get it? Um, five years ago, um, a little bit of the story I told earlier, Christmas became the, kind of the center of, of my life in a weird way. Um, I found out that we spend $460 billion as consumers every year on Christmas, and that like threw me over the top. As a, as a Christian celebrating Christ, it just felt weird to me. Uh, you read the gospel, and then we look at the celebration of the gospel, and it just seems really, really inconsistent with each other. And um, looking at those numbers and everything, I just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and talk to people. And so Black Friday, like five years ago, I got out of bed at three o'clock in the morning and took a video camera, <laughs> and I went to Target. And I got there at like four, and the line was like around the building, right? four o'clock in the morning. And I just walked up to people with my video camera and said, hi, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh, we're here shopping for Christmas because we need Tickle Me Elmo and we need this George Foreman girl and we need this. I said, oh, okay, go to the next person. Hey, what are you doing here? Oh, this is just a family tradition that we do every year. We get out of bed and we go shop. Okay. Um, it's like this thing, this cultural thing in their family. But time after time after time, I just heard this, oh, we're here because we need to get this, we need to get this, we need to get this, we need to get this. It's like, do you really need to get this stuff? And here's the interesting thing about materialism. When it is elevated to an idol status, when we expect it to satisfy us or define us, when we expect it to give us the completeness, it becomes the currency with which we operate with. I mean, a mom saying, I have to get my kid this Tickle Me Elmo so that he knows I love him. Stuff becomes the exchange. Items. That's how we tell each other we love each other. Here's some stuff, see? Be happy with it. Because we think if it's, if it's what we're longing to make us complete, if we give it to someone else, they're going to be sensing the same gratification. Yes, now I have this. Have you guys seen those rubber bands look like dinosaurs and trees and cars and trucks? And if you're a parent, you're like, oh, dear God, no, don't talk about this. Silly bands, right? Yeah, like, I watched this, like, exchange the other day between these two kids over silly bands. And it was not, like, cordial. It was life and death. It was life and death. Who got the dinosaur and who got the monster truck? Um, and there's, like, 300 of them on each arm. You think you could give one out. Um, but that's the kind of mentality. I want what I want. When I want it, I'm going to get it. We want what we want when we want, and we're going to get it. And when we think that's the thing that gives us completeness, that's how we're going to give. That's how we're going to do relationships, through stuff. That's how we're going to express our love for people is through stuff. Here, see, I love you. Here's stuff <laughs> or money. Um, real quick, if you're a girl, young girl or woman, sorry, um, and you're single, just know this. Guys love this materialism stuff. They love it. Like, it's, it's in most guys' hearts, I promise. And if you're, if you're getting tired of being single, 
or waiting, or if you're really questioning, like, is it worth it? Is it worth waiting for a guy who loves God? Can I just go and find somebody because it really hurts? It really, really does hurt on Friday night. It hurts when my mom calls me and says, oh, have you found anybody yet? <laughs> no, mom. <laughs> I've just, just, it's worth it. It's worth waiting. Because if a guy who has this type of materialism in his heart comes to you, that's what he's gonna love you with. That's what he's gonna give you. And you deserve way more than that. You have to have way more than that. If, if, if that's what you sense in the guy you're dating now or the guy you think you're about to marry or the guy who, you know, finds you at Starbucks and says, let's go have coffee. I mean, if you sense that in him, just run. Don't even explain why you're running. Just run. And if you need to, you can just tell him as you're walking away, like, if you need an expo explanation, you can, you can call Matt. And I'll talk to him. I'll tell him, I'll tell him that they're walking into a relationship. They're going to give something or they're gonna have this expectation of this relationship that's never, never gonna work and it's gonna be wrong. And your, your fear of, of being alone that you have now, you're gonna get into a relationship based off of that fear. And nine out of 10 times, you're gonna end up alone again. Your fear will become reality. I mean, it happens over and over and over. It's worth waiting. Set your heart, set your eyes on God. Just make him the desire of your heart as much as you can and as corny as it sounds, just do that and I promise you, God is there and he's listening. So that was a wild tangent. Um, am I running out of time? Yeah, what time is it? 10, 10.42, Yeah, okay, I gotta go fast now. Um, the wants become needs. Um, next thing, things become irreplaceable. Um, we're not talking like sorrow or I had a bad day. We're talking like despair when things are taken from you or when things are broken, when things are shattered. Um, like um, the financial crisis, um, 2008, um, people literally ending their lives because uh, their money was gone. Um, things become irreplaceable. That's a good sign that idolatry is... Um, capturing your heart. Next, um, stuff becomes more important than people. Stuff becomes more important than people. Priorities. Um, things like lying and cheating and stealing and robbing to get things, to find things. Abusing people, taking advantage of people to get things, to accumulate. That's a good sign that something's going on in your heart. Uh, you daydream about it. You know that like two minutes in Starbucks when you're waiting for your latte, what are you thinking about? When you're sitting at the red light, where does your heart go? What fills your mind? Um, there's a good sign. If, if it's going to stuff and things, if you go, it's okay because I've got this fill in the blank, that's a good sign. Uh, you trust it and obey it. You sacrifice for it. Your time, your energy, you work all the time. You work all the time because that's your source of hope the income that you're generating. Um, or it's connected to your identity. Uh, without the stuff, without the things, you'd be nothing. You would be a nobody. That's a good sign that something's going on. Um, I think that 
unfortunately, I'm running out of time, but maybe I can do this really, really fast. Um, the last point there, it's connected to your identity. Without the stuff, you'd be nobody. You would have nothing. Um, later on in Genesis, in chapter 27, uh, a famous <coughs> patriarch named Jacob <coughs> um, goes to his father Isaac and he steals something that's not his. He's, it's called a birthright, a blessing from his brother Esau. He takes it from him. He goes in, he dresses himself up as his brother. He puts on the, the clothes that smell like him and his brother was a really hairy guy and they didn't have laser removal back then so he put, like, he put um, animal skins on his arm and went into his father and he received this blessing from Isaac that wasn't his. He stole it and then he flees. He flees and he spends 14 years getting two different wives, Rachel and Leah, and with these wives, he, he starts having children, and with that, he starts accumulating money and possessions, and by chapter 30 of Genesis, he's incredibly rich, incredibly rich, and it's, it's made aware to him that his brother Esau is coming, 400 people, basically an army. He's coming at him, and so Jacob, it says in uh, chapter 32 of Genesis, is terrified He's, he's done in with fear because he knows exactly what's happening. He knows that what he stole, he knows that the life he's living is not his. It's his brother's. He had the right to it and he took it from him. All of his possessions, his wife, his children, his livestock, his money, his livelihood, he knows deep down it's not his. It's a false identity that he's been living out and he knows his brother is gonna march across the river in the morning and take it back and then he'll have nothing. He'll have nothing. So it says Jacob takes his family and he splits them up and he takes them over the river and he's, he's trying to hedge his bets. If Esau comes this way, he'll get this. If he comes this way, they'll get this and I'll be left with this. Right? He's playing his cards right. I'll have something left at the end of the day if I do this the right way. He's trusting in himself to figure this out. And it says he puts everyone across the river and then he goes back and he's alone. He's by himself. He's in the dark and someone shows up and they start wrestling. They start wrestling. And Jacob is crying out to this figure that he's wrestling with in the dark. And he's saying, I want you to bless me. I will not let go of you until you bless me. Because that's what this, you know, God, the angel, says to Jacob. You've got to let me go. The daylight's coming. If you see me, you're done. I've got to get out of here. He says, no, I'm not letting go of you until you give me my blessing." My whole life I've been looking over my shoulder because I'm terrified, I'm afraid, I'm worried that someone is going to come and take this and I'll have nothing, I'll be nobody. I can't let that happen. I want my blessing. And I wonder if that's what we are doing. That's what we're really longing for, we're looking for is that blessing. And the mistake we make with materialism is that that is the blessing. The house, the car, the stuff. That is the blessing we think, that is what we're after is that and Jacob had that he had that all of it the money the status he had the future the security the comfort the hope and he says God I want the real blessing I want mine and God says okay your whole life you've been called Jacob it's been your name your identity the thief now you'll be known as Israel the father of all these nations. You guys catch that? 
Your identity has been wrapped up in what you've been hiding behind. You've been afraid your whole life that someone would show up and pull the curtain back and reveal to everybody, look, see, he's just like us, afraid and scared, and he doesn't know what's going on. You see what I'm talking about? He's been hiding behind all that stuff. And when it's pulled back, we're afraid because of our shame, our nakedness. Back to the Garden of Eden, we're afraid of that nakedness, the vulnerability, when there's no stuff materials to protect us from perceptions that that we're going to be rejected, we'll be put aside, we'll be told we're not good enough, that we're failing, we're not hitting the mark with our life and we can't stand that so we pile it up and we pile it up and we layer ourselves in all of this stuff. And when Jacob finally gets with God alone in the dark, he says, all that stuff, God, it's not even mine. And I get that, I sense the disconnect. I want my blessing and God blesses him with his true name, his real identity, who he was from the beginning to move forward for the rest of his life. And that, that is the heart of the gospel, the good news. If you're hiding behind materialism, if you've elevated it to a place where you want it to complete you and you're yearning for it. I'll tell you right now, it won't work. And only because Jesus said it will I say it. It's a foolish thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do. We want to be covered. We're ashamed. We want to be covered. I mean, in Genesis 3, when, when this whole scene unfolds, God takes an animal and kills it and covers Adam and Eve and sends them on their way. And that single act right there is repeated throughout the Bible millions and millions and millions of times. There's a choice, there's a sin, there's a walking away from God, there's a choosing self over choosing God, and then there's a sacrifice. There is innocent blood that is spilled, and then there's a covering. You are covered by the blood. You are forgiven because this thing gave its life for you. You're covered. I will not count that sin against you. And centuries, centuries later, the Gospel of John, John the Baptist stops when Jesus is walking down the road and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And first, Peter, Peter says, you are not set free from sin with the traditions of your forefathers, by silver and by gold. That is not your hope. Your hope is the blood of Christ. You guys seeing this? This is good news. C.S. Lewis says that there's no soul small enough that things of this world can satisfy it. You're too big. You're too eternal for anything like money or house or status to complete you, to satisfy you. And that's what Paul and Peter are saying. That's what Jesus is here to do. He is the covering. The cultural concept of covering is materialism. And we'll elevate it to the point where we want to be completed by it. The biblical concept of covering is atonement. The word atonement, literally in the Hebrew, it means covered. You're covered. It doesn't matter what happens. 
you're covered. Jesus gave his life for you and me to be covered. That's what God is doing with the gospel. The Greek definition of the word atonement is reconciliation. It's a returning. That's what God is doing with the gospel. He's inviting us to return to him. He's saying the materials, the stuff, the relationships, if they're elevated, they won't work. You're too big for those small things to cover you. You're always going to be exposed. You're always going to be showing your shame. And you're going to be more and more afraid. You're going to build up more and more stuff and try to hide deeper and deeper behind it. And God's saying, you don't have to do that. I cover you. I cover you. I'm the only thing big enough to cover you. In Colossians 3, 3, we'll end with this. Paul says this. Um, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. Covered. The call of the gospel at the heart, at the, cent- the theme of it is that Jesus comes and offers his innocent life for you and for me as a covering the blood that was spilled, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the shame, he sees Christ. We're covered. That's the gift, that's the good news. We don't have to do anything for it. We accept it, and when we accept it, we're made new. We are transformed. We're covered by God. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Back to Jacob, false identity. Found his real identity in God. This is what Paul is saying. Your true self, the truest version of who you are, is hiding in the covering of Christ. You don't have to go be materialistic. You don't have to consume to feel good about yourself. You don't have to let the fear, the loneliness drive you, motivate you to act. You can stop all that foolishness. And you can open up your arms and you can get down on your knees and you can say, God, this is what I've been looking for. You are what I've been longing for the whole time. All the while I was busy with this, you were here offering yourself. The cultural concept of covering is materialism. We hide. Biblically, the covering is God himself, the only one, the only thing big enough to cover your soul. Let's pray. Father, it uh, it starts with a a confession that you're big. God, and we ask your forgiveness when we assume that our autonomy is bigger than your sovereignty. God, you were over all of this. 
You're over it and you're in it and you're around it, God. And I pray you take the small things that we hide behind and rupture them, God, so that you can come and cover us with who you are, that our real life would be made known to us, that like Jacob, we would walk with a limp because we've experienced you, that we would be marked by you, not by materialism or stuff, but by you. God, this is what you're here to do, and we just give you freedom, permission, access to us to accomplish that. And we say thank you for doing what only you can do and for covering us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.